I'm Sarah Palmer, and this is my husband, Kyle, and we are Covenant Partners here at FPC. Uh, please join us in worshiping the Lord by reading Genesis chapter 13, 1 through 18 with us. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with them into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to, the, to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate, separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, Thank you, Palmers. I'll take that and put it here. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to stay in the Word today. So if you've got a Bible, keep it open to Genesis chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it should be in your uh, handout that was given to you. There's also a place for you to take notes. Uh, we're continuing our study, uh, celebrating God's faithfulness. To keep his promises, we're looking at the patriarchs, in particular, of the life of Abram, uh, who will be Abraham. Last week, we had two S's. I was over in the traditional service, but just to, to catch us up to speed, when Abram went with Sarai to Egypt, uh, they went down there, and we, we talked about two S's in relation to God's promise. Uh, first was God's sovereignty. When they were in Egypt, Abram handed his wife over to a harem where great harm could have been done, including being impregnated, which would have put the promise of God in tremendous jeopardy. But she was spared. God's sovereignty spared, and he will protect his promise. 
Secondly, we saw, how does this, how does this work in a world with fallen people, uh, people who are, uh, join Abram uh, in being idolatrous and self-focused? And that second S was substitution. It was actually Sarah, Sarai, who substituted herself in behalf of Abram. She put herself in harm's way uh, so that Abram could flourish and be secure and safe. And we talked about how this points to Jesus Christ, uh, the ultimate savior of God's people. He is the one who substituted himself for us. He took the penalty of our sin uh, and gives us his righteousness forgiveness so that we can begin again. And in him, we have new life. So we're going to hit a third S today. All right. Uh, and the, so the first was sovereignty and substitution. In last service, I said the wrong S, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to get it right this time. Why are you laughing? Where's your mind? Uh, this S word is surrender. Can you say surrender? Uh, you, did, uh, you don't sound like you're excited to talk about surrendering. Try saying it again. Can you say surrender? surrender. Thank you. All right, because here's the reality that when we see the substitutionary work of God, the faithfulness of God that guarantees the promises of God for the people of God, then it is right for us to respond to the grace of God with surrender. And by surrender, we will experience what it means to truly see uh, what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, living by faith and not by sight. So here's the invitation today. The invitation is for us to, to have a whole new way of seeing. I'm not talking about a different perspective. This isn't some self-help program where you're going to get a few steps, a new path to a better you. It's not happening. This isn't, let me, let me illustrate the difference between a different perspective, all right, and truly a transforming way to see. Here's a different perspective. My wife, Lisa, and I, we've been married 25 years this year, almost 25. That's exciting. A couple of y'all are excited. I know, I know. So, I mean, it's unbelievable, right? I've known her now more than I haven't known her in my life. Like, you get that? That's just crazy, right? Living with your best friend. So what could be a different perspective? Mitchell, tell us about your anniversary year. Can you believe it? We've been married 25 years. It's unbelievable. Lisa, tell us about your anniversary year. It's, it's just gone by like five minutes, held underwater without, without the ability to breathe. <laughs> just suffocating for my life. So just kidding, that was a joke. All right, Callan said it would be funny this service. I don't know, I didn't, yeah. It's like, dad jokes, get used to it, they're coming. But you get the point. That's just a different perspective. What's it been like for you to be married 25 years? What's it been like for you to be married 25 years? Different perspective. Truth, the power of the gospel, it's not a different perspective. Or what do you feel like it is? Or what do you think it is? Or how do you feel? It doesn't do that. It totally revamps how you see reality, all right? Now, I want to give you a visible illustration of this. There's a picture that's up here on the screen. You look at it and you say, oh, I see nothing. That's like a whole uh, wad of six zebras or it's a mountain. You, know, you look at it, it's hard to really see what that is. But when you see this picture, boom. All of a sudden, it comes into focus. And here's the reality about your sight, all right? When you can't tell what something is and you see a more full, more colorful, or a new way to see, it's not, your eyes are not doing anything different. They're just trained to know what you're looking for. That's true. 
in what we have the opportunity to do in the power of the gospel is that it grabs your heart and by God's spirit, you can really see. So my marriage, it's more than just living with my best friend. It's more than just having a companion. It's more than just being a more full version of myself because of being one flesh with my wife. Marriage is a picture of God's love for his people. Marriage is an opportunity for, for people who are yoked together to be in service to the one whose love makes it possible that there is a greater impact from the life of two and through little image bearers coming and making disciples who fill the earth, right? There's a huge, beautiful picture, a way to see marriage. Make sense? So you can apply that. You can overlay that transformed way of seeing to anything in your life. A new way of seeing the, the stressful situation you find yourself in. The fracturing relationships that are frustrating you. The financial situation that you think might be the anchor or the anvil tied to your ankle as you're trying to swim through the ocean. The dysfunction in your family the struggle in your classes, or the excitement of a new relationship, or the excitement of expanding family. See, the gospel, when we surrender, we have the opportunity to really see. This isn't a new perspective. This is a transforming way for you to live. Our eyes and our hearts need to be conditioned to see through God's word, trusting God's promise, and living for God's purposes. Now, I don't know where you come from today, but I want to establish all of us having the same ground that we're stepping forward on. The ground is established by the grace of God. And I want to do this, and you say, oh, that's great. Mitchell's a, you know, he's a pastor. He's got to talk about God's grace. I want you to hear something. God's word makes it so clear, the power of his grace. Let's look real quick at the chapter before you remember when Abram was called in, in chapter 2 that we're going to surrender on the ground of God's grace together. Listen to this calling of Abram. And let me find it here in my Bible. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And then he goes into the plan, I will bless you and make your name great. But hear this. He says, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Now let's look at how this chapter starts in chapter 3, 13, verse 1. You ready? So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the Negev. Who's this Lot guy? You want to know who Lot is? Lot is his brother's son. Here's what you need to see. Abram was given three clear commands. Go from your country, go from your kindred, go from your father's house. The first verse helps us see that he is only one for three. Abram left his country, but he's still got his kindred. He still has his father's house there. Friends, not only had Abram totally made himself look like a buffoon when he was in Egypt by handing his wife over to the harem and putting her in harm's way, but his discipleship has been mingled with his desires and his preferences. God is so patient. Wherever you are this morning, be free. 
Let the grace of God welcome you right where you are. Whoever you came with today, whoever you're walking with in life, show them the same grace. Give them the same space that God gives you. It's the ground of his mercy. He doesn't say, you better get your stuff together for me to speak to you. He says, you're not going to. That's why I came. And I want you to be changed by my grace. That's the ground that we're starting on right there. So when we surrender on that ground together, uh, we're going to see what shapes the heart to surrender once we see the substitutionary work of the power of the gospel. The first thing is it's calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, we see that Abram, my man Abram, look, listen to how he's described in these first few verses, starting at chapter 2. Abram was rich. Sorry, I read that wrong. Abram was very rich in livestock, is very rich in silver, very rich in gold. And he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel. Now I'll jump down to verse 6. The land was full with the flocks and the herds and the tents, so that they could not support both him and Lot dwelling together. For their possessions were so great, they couldn't dwell in the same land. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot. The place, the context of calling on the name of the Lord is in a place of plenty. And I highlight that because we actually live in a world, in a community of uber abundance. Even if you come in here and you're like, man, I got nothing. I got no resources. I'm struggling. You still have more than most of the world just by virtue of being in here. And not many of us can identify what maybe some of you, I don't know, maybe there's a few of you, your herdsmen are arguing with other people's herdsmen about what to do with your flocks and your goats. Maybe, maybe that's you, but probably not. What you can identify with this temptation of being in a place of plenty and, and, and looking at that for your solution, looking at your resources for your solution, defining reality by what you see and what you have rather than taking advantage of the invitation that God gives us to join Abram in worship and prayer. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. We'll start with 3. He journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning of Bethel to Ai, verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, we can imagine that Abram was weary from his journey, especially because he had been traveling with his nephew, all of them, but, but more than that, he'd been traveling with Sarai, his wife. And the last episode of what we just saw was he literally handed his wife over, complete disregard for her well-being, so that he could spare himself. Now, you can imagine Abram was probably a little weary in that long journey back to Canaan from his wife trying to help him learn the lesson, right? Like, if you do that to me again, I swear you know what could have happened. I mean, you've been there, right? I'm sure he was weary from that, but more than that, what we need to see is Abram was experiencing personal renewal. He went back to a place where he had met the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And the reality is that no matter what situation you find yourself in, if you're like Peter and you, you define yourself by the wind and the waves of your life, 
then everyone's your enemy and you just start sinking. But if you allow yourself from a place of plenty to pause and to pray and to call upon the name of the Lord, then you will experience a renewal of your heart and your life. This is an invitation from God's grace to you right now in this place. This reorientation that happens with a personal encounter with the living God, this is normal in scripture. We can go to Psalm 73. You remember when the psalmist is talking about how he is just weary from looking and seeing the wicked prosper. And it says in, I believe it's verse 14, that he went into the house of the Lord. Sorry, it's 73, 17. He went into the house of the Lord and in worship there he was reminded. And it's in that place of beholding God personally and beholding God corporately where we're reminded that God is God and we are not. He has shown his steadfast love and substituting his life for us and we're secure and we can surrender and trust his sovereignty. This is where we discover with Paul from Philippians 3 and 7 that, that, uh, and 8 that everything else is rubbish that Paul says that everything is counted worthless compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ our Lord. He says, why personally walking with Jesus matters? This is why corporate worship matters. In a world, a day and age in our country, where people say they worship regularly, according to Barna, that regular is 1.2 times a month. It's, it's, not a, it's not a diagnosis with condemnation. It's a diagnosis with invitation. God wants you to come worship him. Allow your heart to be renewed with Abraham, even from the place of plenty. Or maybe it's a place of want to just pause, personally encounter him. Together in corporate worship and individually in private worship. When we do that, we see the next thing that, that empowers our surrender so that we can truly see. And that is the invitation to concede, to concede control to the Lord. Now, Abraham in this episode, he's not being passive. It's not like he's old and tired. He's like, man, I can't keep up with these young whippersnappers anymore, Lot. You just go ahead. I'll just take whatever's left over. He's not doing that. He tells Lot, take whatever you want. Take it. He's not being passive, he's being trusting. And you know how hard it is. We live in a, in a part of the country where land is really important. And families are, are divided over land. And if you could imagine the, the unbelievable faith that it takes someone to say, just, I'm gonna trust God. Whatever you wanna do with the land, just take it. That's a posture of security in God's sovereignty, right? And what, is, what does Lot do? Lot, it says, he lifts up his eyes. Get it. Look at me. Lift up your eyes. That's what Lot did. He lifted up his eyes. And you know what he saw? He saw the vast Jordan Valley. Greenery, lush vegetation. More than enough land for all of his prosperity even where he could grow and increase and abound, he lifted up his eyes and he saw a place where he could make his name great, right? Oh yeah. But you know what? 
if we read, what does it say in verse 13? That this was the place where, oh, not 13, 18, uh, where there was the wickedness of the people of Sodom. What he saw is looking beautiful. What he saw is something invitational, living by his sight that could give him and help him build his might. You know what it turned into? It's like Jurassic Park. It's like this, this beautiful island, this paradise of an island where you go to Jurassic Park and it holds all kinds of potential. Look around Jurassic Park, the scientific study, the expansion of humanity, the beautiful new Garden of Eden. What happens? It's a place of death, danger, destruction. The exact opposite of what you see. You see, when we live by our sight and focus on our own self and our own prosperity, that's what we get. This is not just true in Hollywood. It's true all in Scripture. We're going to go back to the garden twice this morning. The first time we're going to see this. We're going to remember in Genesis 3, after God had created Adam and Eve, and he had given them the garden in a fruitful place to live, the protection, the security, the life, the serpent comes in. The serpent, who was Satan, whose whole goal was to unravel God's shalom, his good design. And what did he do? He challenged Eve and Adam to not live by faith in God's word, to not live by faith in God's character, to not live by faith, but to live by what they see. And what did they see? Go back and read. She looked and she saw the fruit that was forbidden. And she saw that it was good and desirable. And she took it and she ate it. She lived by sight. She took that which was desirable and it led to death for her and Adam and for all of the prosperity, posterity. It's not just true in the garden. This is true all through Scripture. We go to places like Judges. And the unraveling of society is marked by a repeated refrain. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And central to that is a famous judge whose name was Samson, a womanizer, a violent man controlled by lust, whose end of his judgment on himself was poking his eyes out because all through his life, he saw things that he desired and he took it. Especially women, especially Delilah, that was his weak place his weak thing. But more than, more than any of those, most notably probably in the Old Testament, was David. You remember David when he was on the roof of his palace, 2 Samuel chapter 11, living by sight, surfing the web, I mean surfing the neighborhoods from his palace. And what did he do when he lived by sight? He came to a homepage that he liked and he stopped. You laugh. This is the tragic, devastating narrative of our culture right now. Men whose eyes are surfing, they stop and see, they delight and they take. That's exactly what David did with Bathsheba. And it led to the unraveling of his family and his kingdom. We've got to remember that we've got a savior who didn't live by sight, but lived by faith. Even when he was tempted in the garden, like Adam and Eve was tempted to see a stone that he could turn into bread. He chose to live by faith, saying that Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the three temptations that he endured because he lived by faith to go and live a perfect life led him to the cross, where he died in the place of people like me who live by our own sight. And responding to his grace, 
we can join Abraham. Abraham, what did Abram do? Abraham waited. Abraham waited until God spoke, until God commanded and said, lift up your eyes. And he lifted up his eyes. And he obeyed God. Now, look, Abraham is not the moral example that we all want to follow, but here, it's a, it's a great paradigm for us. And, and, and you, you might not say, I don't know if I identify with this uh, very much, but I'm going to tell you that Abram, in this situation with Lot, it matters to you a lot. <laughs> See, I told you there'd be another dad joke. You awake? Come on, join me. It matters to you a lot. I'm going to take you to the New Testament. There's two places where this word for lift your eyes up or look is used that I think is really relevant for you. Just walking with you all, I know it. The first is from Luke 12, Matthew 12. You remember uh, when Jesus is teaching about worry and anxiety. You remember this? And he says, don't live like people that don't know me. Don't live by people who live by what you see, trying to find the riches and the power of this world. That just leads to anxiety. He says, be free from that. Don't worry. Today's got enough worry of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. You remember this? What does he say? He says, consider. Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. The lilies are dressed greater than Solomon. And the birds are all fed, even though they're only worth a, a sparrow. Consider. That word is the same word that's in this passage. Look. Look at these things. God provides for them. He's going to provide for you. But when you live by your sight and not by God's promise and faith in his character and goodness, and you're going to miss that opportunity and be wrangled with anxiety. Second, and I want this one on the screen. I walk with a lot of weary disciples. I walk with a lot of people. And this word consider, it's the same word as the author of Hebrews is writing to a weary church that's being persecuted. Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that, this is a purpose clause, so that, this is for you, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. The way that we grow in walking with Jesus in our discipleship is considering looking to him who endured. This is an invitation for us to have our eyes fixed upon Jesus in opposition to other disciples like Peter, who when he walked out on water, he sank because his eyes went to the wind and the waves. But even then, what did Jesus do? He didn't watch Peter drown. He reached out. He said, I'm here for you. So we can call upon the name of the Lord. We get to concede control to the Lord. And thirdly and lastly, we confirm the covenant promises of the Lord. This is the last few verses, and i got to explain why I say confirm. This isn't confirm because we've got to remind God that he made a promise. Hey, you remember this? Like, uh, we had an appointment, right? You're going to show up, God? You're going to do what you said you're going to do? That's not what this is. This is confirm because you're like me, and you forget. You forget by the time you read in the morning till after your first meeting and after your first coffee or whatever it is, what exactly God promised to you. And so this invitation to confirm is really to solidify God's faithfulness in your heart, his word and his work for your life. And this is the way we do it. We confirm through God's word. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram. You know what that means? That means God spoke to Abram. It's not rocket science. God spoke to Abram. 
That's unbelievable. Confirming the promises of God come from the very mouth of God. God is faithful. And you say, well, Mitchell, it'd be a lot easier to be faithful if I was like Abram. I mean, if God spoke directly to me, then it'd be a lot easier, right? And some of us try to grab that, what, what one of my friends calls a, a red phone theology, right? Where we're just like, well, what did God say to me today? What did God tell you today? Right? We, we want that. But here's the truth. Pay attention. We've got about five decades of Abram's life recorded in Genesis. Maybe four times five tops where God speaks directly to him, right? And his life is a downward spiral because of the difficulty it is to walk in faith with God's promises. His failure is never the end of the story. His sin and his struggle do not negate God's steadfast love. But if you deceive yourself by believing it would be easier if God spoke to you, then you are missing the invitation of God having spoken to you. This is God's word to God's people. And God's spirit uses this word so that his covenant faithfulness, his promises can be confirmed to you. He wants you to meet with him. He wants you to hear his promise. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. He promises, though you don't know your future, he is holding it. In his word, God promises that what you're struggling with in life the area of weakness in your life, that is the place where he demonstrates the sufficiency of his grace and his power is made perfect there. That's what we need to be reminded of in his word. That whatever you're going through, whatever the enemy intends for evil, God is making it for good. For the good of his people, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and for the glory of his name. And you're a human like me, and we need the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to fuel our faith so that we can keep our eyes on our Savior, the Son of God, and live for his glory. Back to the garden. You know what? The enemy is running the exact same play that he's been running from the beginning. How in the world did Satan get Eve and Adam to take their eyes off of the eyes of faith off of God's character, his goodness and his promise and, and put it on the fruit and their own desires. Here's how he did it. He distracted them and he made them doubt God's goodness. You know what? He's running the same play. It's not rocket science. He wants you to be distracted. He wants you to be too busy to get in the word. He, want you to, he wants you to live in the tyranny of the urgent or the frustration of your feelings or the bitterness of that life's not working out how you think. He wants you to be so distracted that you're not gonna take time. And even then when you get in the word, he wants you to doubt God's goodness. God really wants you to see, says Satan. God really wants you to be like him, to control everything, to know everything, to be everywhere. That's what God wants for you. Lie. And it's the same play. And grace invites us to wake up and to lean into God's word and to have reinforced God's assurance. This is so beautiful. What, what, is, uh, what is the end of this? What does God say to Abram in his word? 
He says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look northward, look southward, eastward and, and, and westward. I mean, Abraham, guys, do you realize this? Abraham's right in the middle of God's blessing. God's assuring him. He's saying, look everywhere around you. This is all promise. But you've got to see it. And look what he does. Look, God is so gracious. He says, 15, for all the land that you see, I'm going to give it to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. God is reinforcing a promise he made to Abram just a few verses earlier. He's assuring him, though you have failed, I will be faithful. Though you're struggling to live by faith, I will be true to my promises. God is faithful when we are faithless and he assures us in his word so that we can walk by faith, trusting him. We not only see that we're, uh, can, we confirm God's promises through his word, we're reinforced by God's assurance, but finally, we're aligned with God's promises. And we end here. This is, I mean, just feel the weight of this. God says in verse 17, Arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land that I will give you. Arise and walk. Go forward. This, this call of Abraham to leave everything. The patience of God, seeing he, he not only has Abraham not left everything, but his heart's been so mingled. God gives a renewed invitation along with Jesus. Follow me. Let your heart love me, to know my love and to love me more than anything else in this world. Leave everything and, and find a life where in you losing and serving, you discover the richness of who God made you to be. Join Jesus in a journey of discipleship where you take up your cross and find what it means to truly live. That in a place of surrender, you can really see how he's called you to thrive in your relationships, in your vocation, in your classes, with life, with money, with sexuality, with everything of what it means to live a full, abundant life in Christ. God wants you to see the surrendering and following Jesus. And we know God's grace is sure because Jesus surrendered for us. Though he was sinless, when he was in the garden and felt like quitting before going to the cross, what did he say in his prayer? Father, take this cup from me, but not my will. Yours be done. He totally surrendered to the point of death so that people like us who struggle to surrender can find new life in his grace. That's the invitation. You want a transformed perspective on where you are in life? Surrender. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the reality that it was the joy set before you reconciliation and relationship with your people that you surrendered and suffered to the point of death on the cross. And we thank you for your steadfast love and, and the freedom that we have to confess our sins. Here's the truth, Lord. We have lived by sight. We have
not believed that the enemy is the enemy. And in trying to get what we can for ourselves, we have made people in this world enemies. Spouses, friends, former coworkers, neighbors, people we've known for a long time. Or we've believed the lie of the enemy. We've allowed ourselves to get distracted. We've stopped trusting your goodness. Lord, please forgive us and cleanse us and restore unto us a joy of our salvation. Renew a right spirit within us, Lord, that we truly may trust your steadfast love and see the life that you have before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.